0: Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. When Jesus died on the cross, nobody thought him a hero. His movement was over, uh, and nothing had changed. Rome, you know, had stabilized any threat that was perceived. Caesar was still on his throne. All's right with the world. And death once again had the last word. Except, of course, in this case, it didn't. Jesus' followers came up with the shocking claim that his death had launched a revolution, And they believed that God had suddenly put into operation a a new plan for the rescue of the world and really the recreation of the world. And it was the day the revolution began. My guest is Professor N.T. Wright, one of the world's leading Bible scholars. He holds the chair of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. He has served as an Anglican bishop. He's the best-selling author of many books. Uh, he's appeared on ABC News, Dateline, Colbert Report, Fresh Air. And most recently, he's published The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. Tom, it's good to have you back. Thanks.
1: Hi. It's good to be with you.
0: When you looked at... Um, your contributions, of course, in Pauline's scholarship have been profound for many of us, and you've now been focusing a good deal on the Gospels, and in this case, the meaning of Jesus crucifixion. Is it yeah. because you think there's a lot more there than the Church has been getting out of it? Yeah, I think there is a lot more
1: there than the Church has been getting out of it. Actually, I have wanted to write a book rather like this for many years because I did a big book on the resurrection 13 years ago,
0: mm-hmm. The Resurrection
1: of the Son of God. That's and right. My yeah. intention my intention was to follow that quite quickly with a kind of a parallel volume on the cross. But, of course, they're very different questions. The resurrection, the question is really what happened and then what did it mean. The crucifixion, we all know what happened. Uh, the Church was scrambling to catch up with what it meant, and in a sense, we've all been scrambling ever since. Um but then I was made a bishop, and I had rather a lot of work to do, and I was doing other <laughs> things, so the book got put on hold and Finally, after I then finished my big book on Paul three years ago, Paul and the faithfulness of God, mm-hmm. um, I thought it really is time I came back and sorted out what I think I think about the meaning of the cross and as you said i there's quite a bit of Paul in this book, but there's a lot to do with the Gospels because um, often when people have thought about the meaning of the cross, they have gone straight to St. Paul or to the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, that's fine. There's plenty of good stuff there, of course. But the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them tell the story climaxing with Jesus' death. And the way they tell it is a way that I think that churches in the West have just really not tuned into because it's about the kingdom of god god's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven and somehow they are saying to us that work is finally accomplished through jesus crucifixion and we have tended to separate the kingdom from the cross in western theology and church preaching and teaching and so on and so i really wanted to try as best i could to say no the gospels actually hold this together so what is that all about in what sense does Jesus' death complete his work of bringing God's kingdom on earth as in heaven? Because that's very counterintuitive, and it was in the first century, too. But that's what all the New Testament writers, all the early Christians, seem to claim. So that's really what I was exploring.
0: And and really, isn't that one of the central arguments uh, against Christianity, that Jesus promised this kingdom, and what we ended up with was this cross, and then, of course, kind of a church, almost as an afterthought. Uh, Yeah,
1: well... Yes, exactly. That is often an argument, you know, that Jesus promised this great world and all we got was the church. And, of course, that's a bit of a sneer on both counts, um, because (laughs) the New Testament writers um, know perfectly well that the world appears to outward sight unredeemed. You know, Caesar is still on the throne and all that. And when Paul writes the letter to the Colossians and says that on the cross Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers... Paul is actually writing that letter from prison. So he knows perfectly well that the principalities <laughs> and powers can still lash around and whisk their tails about at you and and all that. But he says it's really important that we understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, that was, among many other things, that was a revelation that something had been achieved on Good Friday, namely the power of death itself had been defeated, um, uh, and that therefore we live in a world where death actually is no longer able to, to, to terrify and, and control us. And instead, we live in a world where Jesus already rules, but, but this is the, the crucial thing. The way he rules is the way he ruled from the cross. That is, with the power of self-giving love. And when the church has been the church, has been doing its job, which, thank God, it often has, despite all the sneers of the skeptics, then the church, by working out what it means to love its neighbors, to be people of justice and Mm -hmm. mercy, to be the meek and the poor in spirit and the hungry for justice people, as in the Beatitudes, when the church has done all that stuff, it has been world transforming, yes. and the fact that today we have—I remember when when the Pope came to the UN in, in New York, um, oh, back in two thousand eight he was talking about human rights and saying that human rights are based on the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that if you cut off those roots and imagine you can get them through secularism, all you'll do is the whole thing will collapse into a bunch of special issue um, fanatics shouting at each other, which is precisely what's happening at the moment. Um, Because the, the answer is that actually Jesus' death and resurrection really have changed the world. You know, I'm an ancient historian, first and foremost. I know what the Roman world was like. People didn't care for one another. People didn't look after the sick unless you had the money. People didn't do education unless you had the money. People certainly didn't care for the poor. And now these things are engraved in the conscience of the world. We're not very good at them, but we all know that they matter. And that's a sign already that when Jesus died on the cross, there was a revolution launched, a very powerful revolution.
0: Would you say that with the sacrificial death of Christ, uh, this... uh, where love is at the center, his care for others is at the center, That, that which has now in some ways become the gold standard for what we mean when yep. we say <clears throat> uh, this, is a, this is a good person. Yep. It wasn't bef- that wasn't true before the incarnation, right? I mean, sacrificial love of that sort yep. was not held up as a, a marvelous ideal.
1: That's exactly right. And a few years ago, I wrote a book on on virtue from a Christian point of view, and I pointed out, and the philosophers are all agreed about this, that before the Christian movement, there are several things that we now regard as virtues, like humility, uh, like, um, yes, self-giving love, charity in that sense. Um, like chastity, actually, which nobody regarded these as virtues. Patience. Nobody thought that patience was a virtue until uh, until Jesus. People just thought you should push and get to the front of the queue if you could. And uh, it, it's, it's remarkable that we now do regard these. You know, they're difficult. Humility and patience and so on are not easy. But we all know that they're good things and they're lovely things. They, they, they make life better for everybody if people are practicing these virtues. So that... Um, but but it's not just jesus setting a a moral standard though obviously it is that and this is the mysterious thing that john and paul both stress the belief that evil was and is a, a sort of a dark power which haunts the world and is trying to corrupt and deface and destroy the world and that in principle the power of evil was broken on the cross now as i say Paul knew perfectly well, the early Christians knew perfectly well, they were still getting killed and thrown to the lions and so on. So they weren't stupid, they weren't naive, Um, that evil still has real power. But they believed, because Jesus had defeated it in his resurrection and showed that, um, that actually we now live in a world where the victory has been won, and we can claim that victory in prayer and in sacrament and in in study and, and work, And then go to work in the world on the belief on the basis that Jesus has in fact won that victory and then things can change
0: so we often think of the victory as the resurrection Uh, yeah yeah you're Uh, you're making it clear the victory is at the cross
1: well yeah because that's what I mean Jesus says in John chapter 12 um, uh, looking ahead to his own death he says now is the judgment of this world, now is the ruler of this world, cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, something about his being lifted up, which is which is a sort of exaltation.
0: we got to take a very short break here. We'll be right back. My guest, Professor N.T. Wright. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Professor N.T. Wright, the author most recently of The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. It's an outstanding contribution to our understanding of the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, we were just before the break, uh, yep. uh, Tom, we were talking about uh, many people see the victory as associated, of course, the triumphal resurrection, but it's important to f- locate the victory at the cross, you don't mind picking that up again.
1: That's right. I mean, the resurrection is the moment when the victory is revealed, uh, Mm -hmm. as what it is. But very quickly, the early Christians came to realize that the resurrection happened in the first place because the victory had already been won. The resurrection was the result of that victory. Um, And the Gospels, the way they tell the story of Jesus' crucifixion, make it quite clear that evil is gathering itself into one great, solid, dark mass. Jesus says when they come to arrest him in Luke's Gospel, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Um, He's seen all through the Gospel narratives, from going right back with Herod killing the little boys in Bethlehem, and then you have the shrieking demons in the synagogue, and the plotting Pharisees, and the muddled disciples, and then Judas going and betraying him, and so on. It's as though... Evil as a whole, the evil of all the world, comes rushing together to this one point, with particularly the Roman Empire doing its worst as it always did. And Jesus Mm -hmm. stands there in the middle of it, and it's as though evil is dumped into him. And then, as the very early Christians say, evil is there condemned. The hatred and shame and fear and horror and sheer ugliness of the whole world has been gathered together into one place. And the death of Jesus has exhausted it. It's done everything it can, and by dying under its weight, Jesus has exhausted its power. And that's why sin is conquered, and that's why death is conquered. And the the, the Mm. Gospel writers make it very clear, Jesus is dying as Israel's Messiah, as the representative of his people, as the representative of the world, taking the world's shame and punishment onto himself— And that's why, yeah, the resurrection reveals the victory, but it reveals that the victory has already been won.
0: Wow. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the cross in its first century setting there. We wear crosses. Uh, They're sometimes very lovely. And, you know, in some ways that's a sign of our success, I suppose. We we, we have developed a culture in which the cross is held out that way. But the point is, the cross... Was shame- utterly shameful in the first yeah, century. Absolutely.
1: Could you tell absolutely. us how, how um, shameful it was? Well, the Romans had used crucifixion for some while before this, and various other cultures had as well. And indeed, uh, when Jesus was a little boy, there was a great revolution in Palestine against Roman rule, and the Romans crucified thousands of young men who'd been fighting against them. Jesus grew up literally under the shadow of the cross, but the way they crucified people was designed to degrade as well as destroy them. It wasn't a quick death. It wasn't, in a sense, a nice death, not that there really is a nice death. But it was designed to make the person look ridiculous, look humbled, look um, just battered and wrecked. And often bodies would stay on the cross half alive and half dead for days with rats and vermin and and, and birds pecking at them. And and these would be displayed by a public road so that everyone would have to walk past them and realize if you step out of line, this is what's going to happen with you. It was a very effective um, method of dealing with um, rebel subjects and so on. And uh, so there was nothing nice about it at all. And, and the thing is, as I've often said to my students, the cross already had a meaning, a religious meaning, uh, a political meaning. It meant we Romans run the world. The gods of Rome are the true gods, Jesus particularly is the Lord of the world. And if you get in his way, this is what happens to you. And it is the most extraordinary part of the revolution is that within 20 or 25 years of Jesus' crucifixion, people are writing poems about the cross as the great revelation of divine love. And that that is just extraordinary. Imagine if somebody were to take an electric chair or a hangman's noose or something and write about that as being a revelation of the most utter love ever seen. We would think, oh, my goodness, how can you say that? And that's why Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to to those who don't believe, but he says to us who do believe, it is God's power, because we we sense when we look at the cross of Jesus the power of divine love. That's what it's all about.
0: You mentioned uh, foolishness uh, to the Gentiles and scandal, to the Jews, yeah. the cross was an offense. Is that a is that a technical word in the, in Paul? That word scandal, well, or is that just an a, offense? Well, pop, a scandalon. normally uh, the, understand it. Yeah, the, the Greek
1: scandalon simply means something you trip over. It's if somebody puts a brick in the pathway and you trip over it. That's a scandalon. Yes. Um, but then it, it's used as a metaphor for something that somebody says, which makes everyone think, uh "Oh no, we don't want that." Thank you very much. You know, it's the kind of thing that. A guest at a dinner party says the wrong thing and there's a sudden hush and everyone uh, quickly starts talking about something else and, uh, because they've said something they shouldn't. And and the, the cross is like that, that, you know, you wouldn't mention crucifixion in front of your grandmother or your great aunt because you, you don't talk about it in polite society in the ancient Roman world. Cicero says that lots of uh, Seneca mentions it. Lots of great Roman writers mention it with a shudder. It's a ho- a horrible thing. But for Jews particularly, the idea of a crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. The Messiah was supposed to be defeating the enemy, the Romans in this case, not dying at their hands. And this is the great insight of the early Christians that the messiah had defeated the real enemy because the real enemy was the dark power standing behind rome and indeed the chief priests and all the other forces of evil and whether you call this enemy satan or just the power of darkness or whatever the Mm anti-god power the anti-creation power has been defeated
0: so it's a stumbling block and offense a scandal something to trip over for the jews who are expecting a triumphal uh, Messiah. Yeah. How then is it folly for the uh, the Greeks, the Gentiles?
1: Well, because as far as Gentiles are concerned, a the idea that uh, a Jew is now the Lord of the world just is crazy. <laughs> because you know, they say, well, what, what what is this about? And then, oh, by the way, he was crucified. Well, no, we you know, they, imagine them saying to St. Paul, so, "So what have you been smoking then? What, what, what do you mean, a crucified <laughs> Jew is the Lord of the world? Um, it, it's it's a, it's something to laugh at, to sneer at." Um, And and, uh, nobody had ever heard such a crazy message And this. Paul rather relishes this. Um, He says, he says, I know I go into town and I say this stuff and it makes no sense at all. But some people find that it grabs them by the heart and they feel, as John Wesley said, they feel their heart strangely warmed. Some they sense the power of divine love, and Paul says this must be God's power because there's certainly no wisdom in it. This isn't a clever piece of philosophy; it is just foolishness to the Greeks.
0: Uh, so, what is accomplished then at the cross? I mean, this is—I mean, we know that many of the, the values that we naturally would hold are turned on their head. We know that the let's just talk, start with the kingdom, I guess. So what do we learn about the kingdom from the death of Jesus? Do we learn that wow, the kingdom... yeah,
1: great question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, does it, it's about the method by which we understand yeah. the kingdom, it seems to me.
1: It, it is, it is. That Jesus is constantly... I mean, think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says... Um, this is how God becomes king, through the meek and the brokenhearted and the merciful and the poor in spirit. And then he says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him too. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn in the other one. And this is all counterintuitive. We think, you know, how can this possibly be about how God becomes king? But then Jesus himself goes the second mile carrying the Roman cross. Jesus himself allows himself to be beaten up. This is Jesus' own agenda. And you see it going all through the Gospels, so that when Jesus... Jesus forgives people, and they say, how can he do that? And the answer is, it only makes sense in the light of the cross. And when Jesus heals people, and when he touches people who would make him impure, but he doesn't become impure, they become healed instead. Mm-hmm. Something is going on. The world is going the wrong way, as it were, because on the cross he is going to take the full force of evil onto himself. And in particular, the notion of forgiveness that we see Jesus dying in the place of Barabbas. We see Jesus dying, and the brigand who's hanging next to him on the cross says, well, we deserve this, but he didn't, and therefore, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the Gospel writers are telling us through all these little vignettes... That he is dying under the weight of our sin, and our evil has been rolled together and heaped onto him. And that means that we suddenly look out from our prison and see that the door has been opened, whether it's the door of our past sins, the door of death, the door of whatever it may be that's been keeping us captive. Jesus has taken it and has defeated it, and we are now free to start in the new life, the new creation. So, um, you know, one can go on from every possible angle, and the Gospels actually do a great deal of this, but this is this is what the kingdom of God is about, God becoming king, God ruling the world in a new way because evil has been defeated. That's what it's all about.
0: And this is the only way God can rule in this world, is that right?
1: Well, um, <laughs> good question. My word. Um, Yeah. I mean, I want to say with all Jewish and Christian theology, God is God. God runs the world. Um, If God stopped sustaining the world, we would all just collapse into a puff of smoke. Um, So God is holding the world together. But from the beginning, from Genesis, God reveals that he is the God who wants to run the world through human beings. We are made in God's image so that we can reflect his glory and his stewardship and his love into the world. That's part of being image bearers. God is the working through humans God. And so when God wants to sort out the mess that the world's in, he doesn't send in the tanks and just blast it to oblivion. He could have done that. That's what the Noah's Ark story is all about. But he chooses not to do that. He chooses to work through a human family, the Abraham family, and finally, through Abraham's ultimate seed, Jesus himself, the Messiah, because this is... The way the world was to be. And actually, this, I think, goes back to some kind of doctrine of the Trinity, that from the beginning, God made the world in such a way that he would come and be its true human image-bearer himself. But Mm. when sin and evil happened, then this meant that this same purpose would mean that God would have to take the weight of the evil onto himself. In other words, the, the self-giving love, which is what creation is all about, naturally turns into the same self-giving love that goes the way of the cross and takes so evil s- upon himself.
0: So, in some way, God's purposes in redemption or recreation are what they were in creation. Well, yes,
1: it's it is as though I mean. One is putting words into God's mouth, which is always a dangerous thing to do. But I mean, (laughs) actually, the Jewish rabbis used to do this quite cheerfully, you know, Um, but it is as though God says, I will make this wonderful world, which is other than myself, but I will make it in such a way that I will be able to come and live in it myself uh, as a human being. But then when evil happens, what I will do is I will take the full force of that onto myself.
0: My guest is Professor N.T. Wright. He published The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Professor N.T. Wright, uh, author of many, many outstanding books, uh, including the most... uh, Right now, really, the definitive study of the resurrection of the Son of God. We're looking, however, today at uh, the day the revolution began, the reconsidering the meaning of Jesus's crucifixion. And you're describing for us uh, earlier some of the uh, Jesus on the cross, uh, the the so, sometimes what are called the seven last words: uh, "Father, forgive them; they know not what they do." Uh, to the the penitent thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. What about the cry of dereliction? There, my God, my God, why have you forsaken yeah. me? Yeah. That had to be, at least at first glance, troubling uh, to people yeah. who saw it. How? how uh, yeah. it, it sounds as though he's been abandoned, right?
1: Yeah, it, on, it really on the does. face of it. Yeah, uh, and th- that is, of course, one of the classic hard sayings um, in the Gospels as a whole, particularly if you hold the view, as I do, that Jesus was and is the incarnation of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, in human form. Um, So that... uh, But but then it doesn't actually strain the doctrine of the Trinity if your doctrine of the Trinity is about the God of self-giving love, (laughs) that there's (laughs) something about self-giving love which actually is wonderfully expressed in precisely that cry as i was wrestling with this and writing the book and trying to think back through it again i was really helped by the passage in romans 8 where paul says something similar about the holy spirit that he says that the spirit groans within us as we groan within the pain of the world so that when we really take on board what's going on in the world in syria in Earthquakes in famine-torn countries, etc., etc. Then we groan with that pain, and the spirit is groaning within us. And Paul says, "God the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit is interceding for God's people according to God's will." So you have the spirit saying in us, as it were, "My God, my God, why did you abandon me?" And Paul mm. says, "That's when we are being conformed to the pattern." Of Christ that he might be the firstborn of a large family and this is it's deeply mysterious and deeply troubling and we none of us like the idea of that agonizing groaning but it is where we are called to be as Christians to to stand in prayer at the place where the world is in pain and that means that we are simply sharing the suffering and the cry of dereliction of Christ and so though it is difficult to understand I think if we approach it like that We can see that this is about as far as we can get, really, with that question of, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? I I think, um, you know, you can say, if you like, that, well, it was our sins that hid the Father's face from the Son, and you could say that. Um, I'm not sure that that's what Matthew and Mark, who record that shout, um, are saying, but... um, Mm -hmm. At this point, we are probing into the darkness, and we have to be quite careful about how we, what has to be said, because there's a lot that has to be said, but it's easy to cheapen it and just say, oh, well, God punished Jesus, therefore we're all right. And, you know, it's better to believe that than to believe nothing, but it's much more fine-tuned, fine-grained than that when the New Testament writers explore it.
0: If the kingdom of God is central in Jesus' proclamation... What's its equivalent in Paul's writings?
1: Well, its equivalent in Paul's writings is the fact that Jesus himself is Kyrios, Lord, um, because the idea of the kingdom of God is Israel's God becoming king of the whole world, and Paul sees that that has been accomplished in Jesus, who is the king of the Jews, and Paul picks up the Psalms, which have Psalm 2, Psalm 8, etc., have Jesus exalted as the true king, as the king of the whole world, which is the same theme as the kingdom of God, but now translated into the kingship of Jesus. And of course, people have often said, oh, well, Jesus talked about God becoming king, and then Paul talked about Jesus instead. But that misses the point, because when Jesus Mm -hmm. talks about God becoming king, he does so in order to explain what he himself is doing. He's going around having a party with sinners, he's going around forgiving sins, healing people, raising the dead, and constantly saying, is what it looks like when god becomes king in other words what he is doing is kingdom of god stuff so paul says yes and that was finished and accomplished on the cross and resurrection so now when we say jesus is lord this is how christians proclaim the kingdom of god
0: yes so the 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 proclaiming the the means of the kingdom uh or the kingdom is proclaimed by means of the death of jesus and so it's the the proclamation of jesus as lord but the crucified lord
1: yes exactly right? well, yeah i mean the very shorthand summary is jesus is lord um and paul actually says at one point if you confess with your lips that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved this is basic mm-hmm. but then if you say hang on who is this jesus then of course he is the crucified and risen Jesus, and that is how he is Lord. He has won that lordship and exercised that lordship through his victorious death and his triumphant resurrection.
0: Well, let me come to a major theme of the book, and, and that is that in, in many ways uh, we've reduced our understanding of the crucifixion to uh, simply the means by which I personally can get to heaven, which, of course, yes, is, yeah. is Fine, as far as it goes, but explain to us how that happened, how how this kind of cosmic victory that Jesus wins uh, at the cross has been reduced.
1: Yeah. Part of the problem is the idea of going to heaven as the goal of it all. And I wrote a book about this some years ago called Surprised by Hope, which some of your listeners may know. And that's about Mm -hmm. um, new heavens and new earth. The the Bible isn't interested in souls going to heaven when they die. Um, When we die, if we belong to Christ, we will be with him. And Paul says that's far better. But that's only stage one. Stage two is the new creation and resurrection to new bodies within the new creation. That's the ultimate hope and so if we simply think how do i get to heaven then we think well what's the problem about that and the answer is i've sinned and then we think well god must have done something to deal with my sin and so we belittle each stage of it and if instead we say no it's about new creation god recreating the whole world and me with it and what's Stopping me from being part of that is not just my sin, but my failure to reflect the image in true worship and true service, what the Bible calls the royal priesthood. Um, And obviously sin is part of that failure, but the, the, the human vocation is much bigger than just keeping a moral code. Morals matter, but they matter as part of the larger whole. So then when Jesus dies, he dies as the true image, the focal point of our worship of the one true God. And when we worship the God we see in Jesus, we are, as Paul says, renewed in knowledge according to the image. And as such, we are heading for the resurrection, not just for a disembodied heaven, but actually we are already being incorporated in the New creation, which is jesus work by the Spirit here and now, as well as in the ultimate future, and because we in the Western Church, actually for hundreds of years, and this isn 't one bit of the church it 's all sorts of Western Christians have really gone down I think the wrong track on this, and the bible 's been trying to pull us back and that 's really what i'm what i 'm trying to do um, to say <laughs> this is what the bible is about it 's about new creation and the cross defeats the evil which has dogged our footsteps and and made us to be idolaters and sinful and so on in order that we can be part of that great new creation project which begins with easter
0: well i love of course your scholarship over the years you've also been very pastoral though in your the way you apply scholarship and that's been so impressive to me. So I'm going to ask a, a pastoral question here. To what degree <clears throat> can we expect uh, communities of Christians, churches, parishes, to actually live a way of life which is distinct from the world? So that when, if, so that we, when we ever get to the place where we can say, um, if you want to get a taste of what the kingdom of God is like, look to your local church. Yeah,
1: Uh, I have been privileged to work with many local churches, particularly when I was Bishop of Durham in the northeast of England, which is an old um, industrial area that's fallen on hard times, and there's some really tough parts of it, etc. I've been privileged to see several ecclesial communities, which are not very large in numbers necessarily, but are actually living out the gospel So that when people come there and share the life of that community, they sense, oh, my goodness, I didn't know people could live like this. And this is, of course, how Christianity spread in the first three centuries, when it was still illegal and the Romans were trying to persecute it sporadically. The reason Christianity spread was not because a few great thinkers had great ideas, though they did, and that matters but because the ordinary people who were worshipping and following Jesus were living in a different way, looking after the poor, healing the sick, including people who weren't their own family and weren't Christians. They nevertheless cared for people. And people said, oh, my goodness, we didn't know you could live like this. And likewise, they were, they were faithful in their marriages. They lived chaste lives. And again, people said, we never knew that was possible <laughs> in the Roman world. That wasn't the way it was done. Um, And so in all sorts of ways, the church has shocked people into realizing there is a different way to be human. And the Christians said, yeah, we're not very good at it yet, but we're following Jesus (laughs) and trusting his spirit to try to do it. And even in a little way, that is hugely impressive. And um, today that is still hugely impressive. And if people don't know that, they need to be part of a church where it is true and part
0: of helping to make it true. Yes yes, indeed uh because i do think I do think Christians are at least here in the United States are very discouraged uh right now i, I think that um, th- there's the idea that uh, American culture has certainly gone off the rails, and uh the church Christians kind of stood by, watched it happen, and we didn 't have a plausible enough witness to suggest a better way of life, so I think th- there's this great need for hope
1: uh. I I, I totally agree. But I think we're all in the same boat, really. And I think America is actually waking up now to the reality that we in Europe have found for a long time. Um, but it's really what happened in the 18th century with the Enlightenment was the separation of God and the world. We pushed God upstairs. And, you know, you can go and visit him on Sundays if you want, like an elderly and <laughs> firm relative. Um, but, but but for the rest of life, you know, we'll get on and do the thing ourselves. And we're now reaping the long rewards of that, um, that that, that uh, religion as a private spirituality or even as a corporate private spirituality just isn't enough. It isn't actually serious Christianity, and it's time that with the cross and resurrection in full view, we got back to the real thing.
0: Professor Wright, thank you so much for all your work over the years and for your continued output. Thank you. Great being with you.
1: Thank you you very much. Very good to talk to you today.
0: Professor N.T. Wright, the day the revolution began, reconsidering the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion, outstanding book, get your hands on it.